You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 25. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, and you can find more of my work at metamorecity.com and chrislester.org. If you found this show somewhere else, or if it was given to you by a friend, you can go to either of my websites and subscribe to the podcast for free. You'll get fresh new fiction delivered to your ears every week, and along the way I'll share what's going on with my writing. So let's get right to this week's story. This week I'm bringing you the second half of the prologue to my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. As I mentioned in last week's episode, the chapters of this book tend to run long, so in the interest of having time for things like, say, writing, or spending time with my partner, I'm breaking the chapters in half to make for a more manageable production schedule. In our last episode, we traveled 25 years into Metamore City's past, to the year 1974 of the Christos Reckoning. It was a time of great scientific discovery and technological achievements, the most famous and celebrated of which was Project Lightpath. With a hundred million people watching on television sets around the world, the Lightpath explorers ventured into the Telvari Rift Zone. At the end of the last Great World War, the aggressive nation of Telvar had been wiped off the map with the use of the Balefire spell, an arcane weapon of mass destruction so terrifying that it has never been used again. So great was the shame and horror that the Empire felt at what the spell had done that all information about the wizards who developed it was expunged from the official records. But while most had assumed that Telvar would lie dead forever, the Balefire spell had unexpectedly cracked open an underground nexus, bathing the entire rift zone with life-aspected mana. The result was a dense rainforest, unlike any the world had ever seen. Project Lightpath was sent to explore the jungles of the Rift Zone, and eventually to reach the Rift itself, in the hope of understanding how this miracle had happened. But as the explorers approached the Rift, the team's biomancer reported something unexpected. Something in the Rift was alive, aware, and watching them. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City. Written and read by Chris Lester. Prologue. Continued. As they walked, Cynthia put a fresh tape cartridge into the camera and inserted the previous one into the transmitter rig. CNC, Rain's here. I'm sending up the latest tape of the inner rift zone. Can you see it? The voice that came back was barely distinguishable through the static. Rain's, this is CNC. Negative, repeat negative on video transmission. Audio only. Sighing, Cynthia pushed the stop button on the transmitter's tape deck. There was no point in wasting power on it if the signal wasn't getting through. Damn it, she muttered, then pushed her chin lever again. It's no good, base. Once we get closer to the rift, you're not going to be able to hear anything. We'll take the camera down to the edge and try to record some footage that we can send back to you later. 
She looked up at the rift again, feeling that watchful presence and a heady mix of fear and anticipation. I hope the camera will still work when we get down there, because the view looks incredible. She shaded her eyes from the tropical sun and caught sight of something she hadn't noticed before. I'm looking at it right now, and even in the sunlight I can see what looks like a bright glow coming from inside the mist. It might be the nexus shining up through the rift, but at this point I don't really know what's causing it. I guess we'll find out and then call you tonight. Rain's out. Cynthia hit the power switch to shut down the long-range transmitter, then addressed the rest of the team through the wireless. The local channel came through much more clearly, partly due to the shorter range and partly because the mirror suits were sympathetically attuned to one another. The static is swamping out the signal. We're on our own. Gordon stopped and looked back at Nightwind. Em, run a check on those manorad levels. The elf stepped up behind him and checked the dials on the thaumatometer, which was a full meter wide and clumsily mounted to the back of Gordon's equipment harness. Ambient field strength is now roughly 540 kilochannings. Make that 550. Cynthia swallowed nervously. The mirror suits were rated for an acute dose of up to 20,000 kilochannings, but prolonged exposure to anything above 1,000 was likely to have some long-term effects, and they were still a long way from the rift's edge. Nightwind, you checked the levels when we were one kilometer out, right? Yes, Dr. Rains. At that time, the field strength was 87 kilochannings. Cynthia looked back and forth between the rift and the forest's edge, trying to judge the distance to each. How much closer are we now? About halfway? We are roughly 520 meters from the edge, Nightwind agreed. Gordon narrowed his eyes and thought. Half the distance should mean four times the radiation, he muttered. Instead, it's six times. Cynthia, check my math. You're right, Cynthia said. The worry she felt was reflected on Gordon's face. So, unless somebody suspended the inverse square law, the field strength has gone up by 50% in the last 20 minutes. Looks that way. Gordon nodded once, decisively, then signaled the others to circle up. He looked to each of them in turn, pivoting his whole body to gaze at them through the leaded glass faceplate of his helmet. Ladies and gentlemen, this just became a volunteer mission, he said. It's getting hot out here and pretty damned fast. Things keep going the way they are, and we won't make it to the edge and back without soaking up more mana rad than our suits can handle. Nobody knows exactly what that'll mean for us personally, but you've all seen the things walking and flying around here, so you've got a good idea of the possibilities. Some of the Light Path members shuddered at that. Others just looked thoughtful. Gordon crossed his arms. I have a responsibility to complete this mission, so that's what I am to do. But I also have a responsibility to protect the people under my command. If you come with me, I can't guarantee your safety, so the choice is up to you. He backed up several paces closer to the rift. If you're with me, come stand over here. We'll divvy up the gear once we know who's coming. For a long moment, silence reigned over the group as they stood looking between Gordon and their fellow teammates. Then Nightwind turned and walked to stand next to Gordon. Cynthia wasn't surprised at that. 
elves were more resistant to magic than humans were, and Nightwind's thirst for new experiences was what had driven him to leave Quinardia in the first place. As for Cynthia... She thought about Harold and Hal Jr. again. Going with Gordon would mean coming back changed in one way or another. Would she still be the woman Harold loved? Would she still be a woman at all? That was the damnable thing about wild magic. There was no way to know. Gordon's voice came to her over a private channel. Cynthia, I don't want you to feel obligated to do this. Second in command or not, you've got a family to think of. Cynthia clenched her teeth and thought hard. Yes, she said at last. You're right. I do have to think of them. I have to think of what I'll say to Hal if he finds out that his mother backed away from the greatest scientific mission of the century, that I came all this way, fought to stay on the mission, and then called it quits because I was scared. She raised her chin and walked over to stand in front of Gordon. Hal deserves better than that, she said. One by one the others followed, until everyone was standing around the commander. Gordon nodded solemnly, that same short, sharp gesture of respect he'd used this morning, now applied to each of them in turn. All right, then. Gordon gestured at the rift. We'll set up the equipment at 100 meters, and use mage hands to run the cables out to the sensors at the edge. Nobody gets any closer than that. We may be crazy, but let's not be stupid crazy. There were scattered laughs and chuckles among the group. Then they turned as one and headed for the cliff's edge. An hour later, the heavier equipment was set up and collecting readings. Paulette and Tolly hooked up the cameras and sensors to long data cables, and Nightwind conjured invisible mage hands to carry them out to the edge. Cynthia kept a close eye on the thaumatometer, watching for any further fluctuations in the rift's mana field. The field strength was now over 25,000 kilochannings, well above the Mirsuit's acute dosage range. Cynthia wasn't a wizard, but she could feel the excess mana rad seeping into her body, merging with the inner life force found in all living things. It felt like the combination of a caffeine rush, a runner's high, and the afterglow of the best sex she had ever experienced. Colors seemed brighter, sounds crisper, and her skin prickled and muscles quivered with restless energy. She wanted to run, to dance, to sing, to tear off the suit and revel in the touch of the wind on her bare skin. She reined in her thoughts with an iron effort of will. That way lay madness. Life-aspected mana had many positive effects at moderate doses, but the energies bathing them now were far too much of a good thing. There was a reason nothing grew this close to the edge. It was a near certainty that the wild magic was already changing her, kindling mutations and somatic alterations that would manifest in a matter of days, or even hours. She wouldn't be coming back as the same woman who started this mission. If her mirror suit failed, she wouldn't be coming back from the mission at all. Cynthia looked over at Nightwind, who sat on the ground in lotus position a few meters away. He had drawn out a spell-casting circle on the bare earth, elven sigils between the outer ring and the inner triangle in which he sat. He sat with perfect stillness, his expression alert but relaxed. If he felt the same urges that Cynthia felt, he gave no sign of it. "'How's the summoning going?' she asked. 
The elf didn't move, but his lip twitched up in a half-smile. Summoning implies that I am attempting to compel a creature to do something. I would never presume to do that here. Cynthia waved one hand, conceding the point. She knew a lot about the biological effects of mana, but she was lost when it came to magical theory. All right, so what are you doing? Think of it as sending a wireless signal, Nightwind said. I am broadcasting our presence and our intentions, and providing an open channel through which they might respond. They? Nightwind nodded once. The presence in the rift is not a single entity. There are many... facets, I suppose, like instruments in an orchestra, each distinct in aspect, yet there is an emergent character to the whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. Cynthia glanced out at the rift, then back to the elf. Has anything answered yet? Not intelligibly. They seem to recognize what we are, but the impressions they have sent me are impossible to interpret. I believe the way they communicate with each other does not translate well to creatures unlike themselves. His lips turned up in another half-smile. We're attempting to work out a common set of symbols. I wish we had a linguist with us. Cynthia snorted. Well, we weren't expecting this to turn into a diplomatic mission. An oversight, I'm afraid. I'll endeavor not to cause an interspecies incident. His tone was light, but Cynthia heard the unspoken worry behind the words. Anything powerful enough to hold itself together in a place like this was not something they wanted to piss off. Gordon came up behind her then, put a hand on her shoulder and gave it a squeeze. He knelt beside her to look at the thaumatometer, then clucked his tongue. Are you holding up, Cynthia? His voice was low and gentle over the private channel. The touch kindled a surge of raw desire in Cynthia, as she was vividly reminded of the similarities between Gordon and her husband. The life-aspected manna amplified all of her physical urges, and the sudden hunger for Gordon's skin against hers was almost unbearable. Almost. I'm still with you, she assured him. She dialed down the thermostat on her mirror suit a couple of notches, and the rush of cold against her skin took the edge off her arousal. It's getting hard to focus, she admitted. I hear you. Gordon glanced over at Nightwind. Has Emerus put in a call to the locals yet? The line's open, but they're still figuring out how to talk to each other. Cynthia clenched a fist in frustration. I almost wish I hadn't wasted my power pack on the transmitter rig. The sensors I brought with me might have helped us figure out what we're dealing with here. Seems to me that we found something new here, Gordon pointed out. Might be the gear wouldn't have helped that much. Maybe, Cynthia admitted. But I wish we had power for the pneumoscope at least. Gordon's eyebrows knitted together with tension. So do I. But even if this thing has a soul, it might not be enough like ours for the machine to recognize it. He sighed. There's no use crying over mitobens in any case. Cynthia nodded reluctantly. There were certain things you could count on when you were dealing with soulish creatures, like the capacity for empathy and freedom of choice. A soul didn't necessarily make a creature any less dangerous, but at least it assured some sort of common ground. A soulless creature, like a fairy, could neither understand human emotions nor act in any way that was contrary to its essential nature. 
If you didn't know what that nature was, it could get you in a lot of trouble very quickly. Gordon's thoughts seemed to be running in a similar vein. He looked over at the spatial distortion sensor, which would warn them of any incursions into the material plane from the realms outside. The walls of reality grew thin where mana levels were high, which made it easier for all sorts of things to cross over. Spatial integrity is weak but steady, Gordon said. Whatever they are, they're living on our side of the tracks. Good sign, Cynthia said, feeling a little better. There had been times in the ancient past when magic had torn open persistent holes between the mortal world and someplace else. The results of such a breach were never less than disastrous. At least they could be sure that Nightwind wasn't communing with some eldritch horror from beyond the stars. The elf's posture stiffened abruptly. I believe we have a breakthrough. Hand me something to write with. Cynthia opened a pocket on the leg of her mirror suit and drew out a marker and a pad of paper. She stood, walked over, and handed them over the lines of the circle to Nightwind. They can't talk, but they can read, Gordon guessed. Nightwind ignored him. Taking the marker in one hand, he rested its tip lightly against the surface of the paper. He did not look at the paper as his hand moved, unconsciously drawing a set of complex symbols in thick, black lines, filling the page in a line from top to bottom. The marker reached the end of the page and stopped moving. Nightwind held up the pad in front of his faceplate. His eyes widened in shock. What? What's it say? Cynthia asked. The symbols didn't look like Elvish. They... they bid us welcome, the elf said, his voice unsteady. And they anticipate our participation in the great chorus. Cynthia's blood ran cold. Wait a minute. Why do they think we're going to stay here? Nightwind's eyes met hers. Because we cannot escape. At that moment, the alarm sounded on the thaumatometer. Cynthia ran back to look at it and saw that the dials had pegged themselves at the upper limits. The field strength was literally off the scale. From the rift, Cynthia saw the light intensify, turning the gray mist brilliant white. A low rumbling sounded from beneath their feet, growing stronger by the second. "'Run!' Gordon shouted. "'Everyone get away from the rift! Get!' The light exploded outward from the rift, and the world went white. For a moment, Dr. Cynthia Raines felt an all-encompassing, bone-searing pain. But only for a moment." Lightpath Base, this is Lightpath 2. We found the worksite. The heavily shielded assault craft lowered itself to the ground alongside Lightpath 1's abandoned equipment. The bay doors opened, and six suits of powered armor marched onto the naked earth. Lightpath 1 had been equipped with the lightest mirror suits that the expected radiation levels permitted. The rescue operation was equipped with the opposite in mind. The captain of the rescue team led her squad to the thing they had spotted from the air. She bent down and raised it in one heavy, servo-driven claw. By the prophet, she whispered. Lightpath 2, this is base. Have you found Lightpath 1? The captain looked at the empty mirror suit she held before her. The patch on the suit stated simply, Reigns. Negative, base, the captain said. 
her voice hollow as she looked at the similarly empty mirror suits scattered around the worksite. They're gone. They're all gone. And that concludes the prologue. Tune in next week for Chapter 1, where we'll meet Cynthia's son, Hal Jr. How has he coped with the loss of his mother? And how will he respond when an old lover offers to help him find out what happened to her? Find out next week. Philip Pullman said, After nourishment, shelter, and companionship, stories are the thing we need most in the world. Well, I'm trying to do my part. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 7,380 words this week, over the course of 9.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 798 words per hour. As of Thursday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 164 days without breaking my chain. I've continued chugging away on The Lost and the Least this week. I'm now into Chapter 7, and I'm just shy of 21,000 words. I don't know if it's that I'm excited about the story, or inspired by NaNoWriMo, or both, but I'm cruising on this one, folks. Since October 28th, I've written over a thousand words on this novel in five of the last nine days. That's a significant boost to my writing output, and I hope I can sustain it over the long run. Looking back at the month of October, I wrote 22,242 words in 31 days, for an average of 717 words per day. I spent 31.5 hours writing during the month. Compared to September, I increased my word output by 9%, and my butt-in chair time increased 14%. That makes October my third most productive month so far, after June and August. In the six months that I've been writing again, from May through October, I've written over 125,000 words, enough to fill a good-sized novel. Some of that does include audio scripts, like this one, but it's still the fastest writing pace I think I've ever managed. It makes me excited to think of all the stories I'll be writing for you in the months and years to come. And now, the feedback. Hi Chris, it's Sarah Testarossa. I got some feedback for you for the first episode of Things Unseen for part one of the prologue. First off, thank you so much for deciding to podcast this novel. I know I'm not the only one who was game for that, so I'm glad that you also decided it was a good idea. I look forward to hearing it over the next however many weeks it takes. I don't really have a lot of commentary on the story itself so far. Um, I feel like I just got the very beginnings of a glimpse of things. It seems like it's going to be very interesting, just with this mana rift. The idea of all the multiple new discovered species is really cool to me as a biology geek. So that's pretty cool. I mean, part of me is like, ooh, I wonder if any bonus content, if you might like talk about some of the critters, if they don't end up coming up in the um, podcast itself. Because I know you also are a bio geek, or hopefully that label is acceptable to you. I don't know if you'd prefer biologist, but (laughs) whatever the case, uh, I'm curious about what kind of creatures you envision there beyond what you've already written in the book. I mean, I don't know what all is in there, obviously. Hi, Sarah. 
As you heard in this episode's installment, the question of what sorts of creatures could be found in the outer rift zone was quickly subsumed by the question of what is at the rift itself. The secrets of what happened at the rift, both to the members of Project Lightpath and before they arrived there, will haunt the characters throughout the rest of the book, and have important repercussions for everyone involved. You'll get the first taste of that in Chapter 1, when we jump forward to the present year and meet Hal Raines Jr. for the first time. As for the organisms of the Outer Rift Zone, at least one of those unique species will come to play an important role in the story. If you've listened to all of the Metamore City stories released so far, and Sarah, I know you have, then you've already been introduced to it. And that's all I'll say for now. For those of you who are into Metamore City fanfic, you should check out the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. Metamorph Adam Schmidt has shared his first look at the Metamore City story he's working on, titled A Deadly Game. And if you've been thinking of writing some Metamore City fanfic of your own, the Facebook group is a great place to share it with your fellow Metamorphs. The link will be in the show notes. Lastly, it's time to honor our newest Patreon patrons, Alasdair, Eero, and our own Sarah Testarossa. You guys are rocking it on the Patreon campaign. We hit our $100 a month milestone goal for the second month in a row, which means I'll be writing and producing another bonus story this month. That one will be released in the first week or so of December. Even better, we're now more than halfway to our next milestone goal. At $200 per month, you'll get a bonus story episode, and I'll commission an original black-and-white illustration of one of the stories you've heard on the podcast. We've already got an artist lined up for it, too. Metamorph Randall Fulton, whose amazing illustrations we've previously seen on the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group. Randall is super excited about this project, and looking forward to being able to do more Metamorph City artwork. So if you want to see him bring these stories to life, head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make your pledge today. If you'd like to send in feedback about the show, you can email your comments in text or mp3 audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus. E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S As previously mentioned, if you want to converse with your fellow Metamorphs, join the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.